Our first reading was taken from the second book of Samuel. The two books, originally one book, offer about a century's worth of historical data on the rise of the monarchy in Israel. The second book deals primarily with the dynasty of King David, and our reading from the seventh chapter specifically focuses on God's promise that David's throne will stand firm forever. Now, why such a promise? Well, ultimately, it's to teach us the humility of God who works in and through our history and wants us to trust him. King David had just brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, leaving it to reside in a tent, as it always had. David, however, became increasingly uncomfortable with leaving the Holy Ark in a tent while he resided in a luxurious palace of fragrant cedar. And David confided his discomfort to the prophet Nathan, who kind of jumped the gun a little bit and said, Oh, go do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. Well, Nathan got that one wrong. In other words, go ahead, David, build a temple, build a house for God. God, however, corrected the prophet, telling him to remind David, hey, uh, David, you didn't get to be king because of your wits. You didn't get to be king because of your good looks. It was I who raised you from the status of a shepherd to a king. It is I who will establish your kingdom so that your throne will stand forever. Now, why did God not want David to build a temple, to build him a house? I mean, David's intention was good. It was noble. Well, you see, there is a fundamental flaw in our fallen nature. We actually begin to think we're so essential, well, God just can't get it done without me. The universe revolves around me. Now, it sounds wacky and crazy, but we do it all the time. How many people here know folks who treat their work as their God, thinking that they're so essential? <laughs> I drop dead today, I guarantee in 24 hours you get a new priest. No one is that essential. So God's gentle rebuke was a reminder. Uh, David, I'm in control. You're not. And we see this played out again in the gospel text. For the second time this Advent, we encounter the mystery of the Annunciation. Only Luke's gospel contains this dramatic account. Now, where did Luke get his information? Remember, Luke was not an eyewitness to anything Jesus ever said or did. Well, there are some tantalizing hints. In his Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Luke addressed a man named Theophilus, which means lover of God, telling him 
that Luke spared no effort to, quote, compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, close quote, stressing that the information Luke presents in the gospel comes from, quote, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, close quote, meaning preachers, and that Luke strove to write everything, quote, accurately anew and in orderly sequence, close quote. Now Luke did his homework by consulting with those who knew Jesus, who witnessed his ministry, the apostles, and others. Now imagine for a moment the tons of information Luke amassed from all these accounts. The reams of paper, or in Luke's case, clay tablets, that he had to record all this stuff on. But now imagine, how did Luke make the decision what to keep and what to throw away? I sometimes hope some biblical archaeologist is able to find the fragments of those clay tablets of the stuff that Luke threw away. But the account of Jesus' conception was not something any of the apostles were around for. There were no other witnesses. They came on the scene 30 years later. So who would have witnessed, heard all that is in the account of the Annunciation? Who would have heard, who would have witnessed the archangel speaking to Zechariah in the temple about the birth of John the Baptist, who was to be the forerunner of Jesus? Who would have witnessed, who would have heard these things to hand on? Well, in the second work of Luke, the book of Acts, Luke mentions in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, that among those gathered with the apostles in Jerusalem was Mary, the mother of Jesus. One would be very hard-pressed indeed to assert that Luke would have obtained all that detailed information he gives in the account of the Annunciation from anyone other than the Blessed Virgin Mary. What Luke tells us in the Annunciation is that God kept the promise he made to David many centuries earlier. David's throne was secure, to stand firm forever, to be occupied not by a mere man who is a descendant from David's line, but a man who is also the living God himself in the person of his only begotten son, born of a humble virgin. And no power on this world is strong enough to take the throne away from him, the throne by which he shall justly judge all human beings. This king, however, will have the humility of his father. He will not reign in fine robes seated on a golden gilded throne fawned over by courtiers, but will be virtually naked while nailed to a cross, mocked by all, save his mother and a repentant thief. This king will not force edicts upon his subjects, but invites them to accept the mystery of faith and believe. 
This king will not offer fine wine to his guests at court to show his generosity, but instead he will pour out his blood on all who accept the grace to come to him for the forgiveness of their sins and offer them eternal life. David's throne was made secure, not in power or military conquest or in clever treaties, but in humility, the humility of God who loves us so much he emptied himself and became one of us. As Advent comes to a close, and we enter into the mystery of Christmas and all the feasts of the Christmas season, bear in mind that it is this aspect of divine humility that dominates and should evoke from us awe and gratitude.